Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 307 of F Stop Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week, I pulled together four passionate photographers with very different positions on artificial intelligence and photography, including a copyright lawyer. We learn all about how AI systems work, we dispel some common myths about AI systems, and we cover multiple angles of the debates that exist relating to AI and photography. We also discuss the ramifications on the industry, and we cover multiple ethical concerns that are popping up relating to AI. Before we dive into today's podcast, I wanted to thank our latest supporters of the podcast over on Patreon, including Michael Brennan, Jeffrey Halpern, Michelle Sons, JJ Drubar, and Tom Shapira. I appreciate all of you and all of the wonderful people that have helped to keep our podcast going. I'm a big believer in the value for value model. This value for value business model keeps the podcast accountable only to you, the listeners. This business model functions on the honor system. So if you've found value in this podcast, please support it on Patreon and make sure that it can continue to inform and entertain you for many years to come. Patreon supporters get special access to bonus episodes, early releases, and a lot more. Okay, let's get to this week's episode on artificial intelligence and photography. All right. Well, I'm very excited today. We have an amazing panel of guests. We're recording a panel conversation on artificial intelligence and photography. And I thought it would make sense to break this down into four categories of discussion. The first is how and what of AI, meaning what exactly is it and how is it created? The second is the use case, utility, and why of AI from an art and photography perspective. The third is an ethical business and impact analysis of AI as it relates to photography. And lastly, uh, we want to dive deep into the legal ramifications of AI as it relates to copyright infringement and photography. So we have a full plate of topics we want to discuss. Um, and I also want to set, set some simple ground rules because I know this topic can be um, you know, a passionate thing for some of us. So let's try not to interrupt each other and let's keep it civil. So uh, let's dive in, shall we? Um, so quick introductions. Uh, I'm just going to start in Tim Parkin, if you want to introduce yourself first. Yeah, I'm Tim Parkin. I'm a, I run a magazine, a landscape photography magazine called On Landscape, out of the Highlands of Scotland in the UK. I also run a drum scanning company for film, and I still use uh, large format cameras and film. And I run a, a little competition with Matt here. Yes. Is that enough? Natural Landscape Photography Wars, just a That's quick plug. That's it. We've got to mention it. I'm rubbish at marketing. <laughs> right. Right. All right. Um, next, Diana, if you want to introduce yourself. I am Diana Nicolette Gian. I'm an artist from Honolulu, Hawaii. I've been heavily using um, AI since around the end of June last year when a friend introduced me to it. But I work in a variety of media, mostly start with a lens until the AI phenomenon came up. And I let the idea dictate my media. Awesome. And so before AI, 
was around, you were primarily just using photog straight photography or um, digital? Very little I do is straight. But um, yes, I start with a lens. It may not end up looking like it. Got it. Okay. And Bruce, why don't you go next? Hi, I'm uh, Bruce Couch from Bend, Oregon. I'm kind of a photography generalist. Um, I'm probably the least qualified person in this group, and I'm just happy to be here to discuss AI. I love it, Bruce. Well, and Bruce is also very humble and one of the most kind people I've ever met in my life. But well, that's a whole other conversation. Um, Arka, why don't you go next? Yeah, so my name's Arka Chatterjee. I'm an intellectual property lawyer. I work for a genetics company. I'm based in Los Angeles, and even though most of my work is in the science tech side, I've had a longstanding fascination for uh, the interface between IP law and art because I'm also a painter and a photographer as well, mostly landscape and portrait, and then I, my paintings are mostly sort of human-ish human subjects. And uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've been interested in this for a long time. Even when I graduated from law school, I helped edit a book by Tad Crawford for, you know, Legal Guide for Visual Artists. Some of you may have seen it, I don't know. But um, it's a, it, you know, this, it, this particular area is really interesting to me. So I'm really honored to be chatting with you all about it. Awesome. and. Just a quick plug, Arka was actually a guest on the podcast back in like episode 150 or so on specifically around copyright. So um, if you want to go really deep in the weeds on copyright, you can listen to that episode. Um, I don't bore anybody. <laughs> no, it was actually really good. Um, well, so let's just dive in. So starting with Tim, let's talk about what AI actually is and how it's created and then, of course, others, feel free to chime in on your own after Tim kicks us off with a nice intro. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, I think the first thing to say is AI is a very broad church of lots and lots of different techniques. It covers lots of things. It, it's fairly meaningless, to be honest. Um, the, the types of AI that are used in image generation can be split into two, two types, probably. We've got these things called generative adversarial networks and stability diffusion. Um, you don't need to know a lot about either one, but I'll describe both because some of the fundamentals come into play in both of them. And, and what are the things most people think when they look at AI is think there's some sort of procedural code going in the background that's finding bits of images from the internet and creating a collage. So, you know, you ask it for a picture of a pig riding a bicycle and it'll find a pig and a bicycle and try and find some way of munging these, these two together into a picture. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, the actual way things work is a whole lot more weird than that. Uh, we'll start off with the generative adversarial networks. And this is, uh, in short, it's, it's like having a master forger and a detective working together to try and uh, con each other. So let's say, let's say the system said, make, a, make something that looks like a $10 note. And the, the forger will try and create something that looks like a $10 note. To begin with, it doesn't know what to do, so it just creates a bunch of noise on a screen. And the, and the detective will go, does that look like a $10 note? Yes or no? And it tries to guess. It'll get it wrong. And it's using... To try and guess, it's using all the information it's found about $10 notes, all the images beforehand. So it'll learn characteristics about what might appear on a $10 note, the different shapes. 
And as this goes on, as it learns every time, the the forger gets better and better at making uh, a, a $10 note picture. And the detective gets get better and better at detecting it. And they fight against each other until you get to a point where the detective can't tell the difference between a real $10 note and the forged $10 note. But the interesting thing is here, it all starts from noise. Uh, and that this is what I find most fascinating. It's rather like if you put the television on after a night's out and imagine you took up the noise in the background, right? When television's turned off for the afternoon or whether, if it didn't play overnight and you start seeing patterns appearing in the noise and if you've uh, had too, one too many beers, you can start seeing shapes appear. And the, and the computers are very effectively doing this. The stability diffusion model is slightly different, but it works in very much the same way. Uh, it, it works by saying, let's take a picture of a $10 note and we will add noise to it until it no longer looks like a $10 note. And we'll work out how to get back to a $10 note from that noise and what we have to do to the noise to get there. So that means if we've got a picture of noise and we have this methodology, we've got a path back from noise to $10 note. And we can use that from all the different images we've got stored in the library. And if we join them all together, we can say if we've got lots of images with cats and dogs, we can uh, throw a piece of noisy imagery at it and it will gradually start recognizing shapes and, and transforming this noisy image into something that re resembles or reminds the, the brain of the computer of a cat or a dog. And it's, it's, it's rather like uh, somebody on the first, first hallucinogenic trip going, going, oh my God, I can see shapes everywhere. It's appearing from the mist. And all of a sudden something appears in front of the computer. So, but the key thing to take away is it's not a collage. It's generating something absolutely new from the influence of uh, all the background images it's ever seen. I think that's a good summary. Um, I want to have Diana chime in as well because I think she probably has a little bit more to add in terms of the things that she's been reading about as well. Well, I actually agree with everything he said, except I have to take exception to your term. I feel like using the term forger underscores some of the uh, falsities about what people believe about how AI works. Hmm. It's not actually forging somebody's work as, it, as the way a $10 bill would be forged by a counterfeiter. So I, I just, I understand why you use that analogy in terms of people get it, but I also think that it, it does a disservice to using these kinds of tools. It has a weighted term to it, yeah. The other thing that I would say is that um, more recently, um, there is the, instead of the text to image, there is the image to image generation, and now video and all kinds of things, but there is the image to image generation. So in start, instead of starting from words, it's actually trying to uh, find the shape that it associates with that shape, right? Gotcha. Yeah, and I think there's kind of a perhaps a slightly misconstrued understanding of how AI works in the kind of general population, especially amongst photographers, because I think the assumption is that what's been done is that these AI systems are scouring the internet for our photographs, and then they're using them to create replications based on a input of string uh, of text and based on what Tim is describing it's not really like that at all. 
Well, and and I was just going to add, like, the plaintiffs in the recent lawsuits against these platforms have characterized it almost exactly the way you just did, because it advances their argument, right? But it's incorrect. And, like, among a number of other statements in their documents that are incorrect, right? And so, like, the way you frame it's going to be super important, but for the legal stuff but you know i think i think tim's characterization of it is is pretty spot on and you know makes it really difficult to to sort of tack infringement onto there i I should probably add that there is also a uh an expectation by people that the algorithm has all these images available to look at and and again that couldn't be further from the truth because the way most of the algorithms work in in, and uh, i know that this is the case for generative Generative, generative adversarial networks, try saying that late at night. Um, what that does is actually looks at an image, it deconstructs it, and tries to create an image that has the similar ideas in it. So if, if you think, if I, let's say if I've t- got a picture of my cat, I will take a picture of the cat, I will then try and paint my opinion of what that cat looks like based on the photograph of it and store, the, store my painting. And so in the database of these systems or all my artworks that are based on the photographs. So none of the photographs are actually stored. Um, I mean, they may in some systems, but the systems I've looked at, none of the original photographs are actually stored. Gotcha. I understand, and I pretty much agree with everything you're saying, but based on that, why would... Uh, like, for example, I, I checked um, Have I Been Trained, and I have hundreds, if not maybe a thousand images that have gone on that. Um, uh, why does it need that? Um, uh, it, it needs to see something to generate something. And it's looking at everything that's been done in the past. Um, and, I, and the other aspect of this relative to the forger argument is, I could say, I want an image created in the style of Diana Nicolette Gian and and get a result back. But it um, won't look like I, mine because I've tried. <laughs> I, I, well, I have actually done it with Mark Adamus and I get results back that are somewhat consistent with Mark Adamus's style. Um, and, and Mark Adamus gets nothing from that. Uh, I, it's, I, you know, his images I know are probably, uh, uh, every single one of them has probably been trained, used for training. Do you, Bruce, can you just real quick, um, explain what have I been trained is? Um, have I been trained? I think it's .org or I, I forget whether it's .org or .com, but, uh, it's a website that you can take one of your images put it in there, and when you put an image in, it'll say whether that image has been used to train AI. Um, uh, There is a a problem with it that I think I'll wait to get into once we get into the legal aspect, Um, but it will tell you, like for example, Matt, you've seen the photo that I have of an escalator that I shot with a pinhole camera, and I put that in there, and when I put that in there, um, it's that it showed me, yes, it's been used, and it showed me that literally every image I've ever taken of an escalator with a pinhole camera 
and there's a fair amount of those, um, they're all in that same grouping. Um, so gotcha. it's using those images for that uh, specific look. Um, now, I, the fact that it takes them apart and recreates something else, that's a whole different aspect of this. But it's using my work, and nobody asked me. Gotcha. Uh, Diana? So um, I actually really like Have I Been Trained? And I looked for my work in there as well. I found 40, and after 40, I was like, you know, um, I don't have the time to sift through this database image by image. When I put in my name, what happens is it reads Diana and it comes up with images of Princess Diana, or it reads my last name, which it has a meaning in Korean. And although I'm not Korean nor married to a Korean, um, and if so, it comes up with images relative to the Korean culture. If I put, say, DNGM. But if I put in specific images, I can get them and it will show you where the image came from. So I know that my images were scrapped from um, Saatchi. They were scrapped from uh, an article done in Lens Scratch, uh, a German magazine, uh, an English magazine or a British magazine, a couple of other places. That And it does bring up other images I've done that are from the same series when it when I put in one of those images. But if I put in my name, I can't come up with me. And before this, I put in Bruce's name. Because um, <laughs> I read on, on his timeline where he said he had a thousand images in there, and I'm like, that's interesting. Did he really, like, search through all, a, a, did he really upload a thousand images? Like, what a time sink that would be. So I... I Put in Bruce it was. And nothing comes up for you, Bruce. Nothing. Just like nothing comes up for me if you put in my name. So although our works are used, if you go to M Mid Journey, which I also tried with your name, and I had some of your images from Flickr on the screen next to me at the same time. So if I put in your name, if I say landscape photo in the style of Bruce Couch, what comes up does not look like your work. Um, to, except to the extent that it's sort of a generic black and white landscape. So to some extent, it understands that you do black and white landscape work. But that's about where the similarities ended. And, and I put in the same, um, the same phrase with different names, like I did me, I did a couple of other people. And, and the images were very much like each other. And what happens is these systems have sort of defaults that they go to if they don't recognize something you told them, but the something is early enough in the prompting to be um, important. So the, like with mid-journey, the closer it is to the word prompt and the colon, the more it counts it. But that still doesn't, it, it still defines some other stuff in there. So when I put in landscape by Bruce Couch, Bruce Couch is pretty close to that prompt colon command that I'm putting it in next to. And so it, it somehow reads you, but it's defaulting to this sort of generic landscape. And the ones I did 
for all four of the names I tried, including mine, the same day I did this, um, all looked pretty much similar to each other. So it was, it was defaulting to something it understands as landscape photography. Gotcha. I know, Bruce, you wanted to say something else, and then I think yeah. I want to jump into the uh, next well, section. Well, first off, when you do a search for me or do something in the style of Bruce Couch, I'm basically a photography nobody. Um, I, I have not made any major efforts to get all my photography out there or noticed. Um, I, uh, I've been doing it a long time, but, uh, uh, but I'm not a Mark Adamist. Uh, I, I'm not a Tim Parkin. I'm not a Diana Nicolegian. I'm not an Arca uh, Chatterjee. Uh, I am just a guy who takes pictures. Um, uh, the way I found out roughly, I knew, I know that I have at least about 500 images because what I did is I, I sat down for a while and I started putting images in and it was taking images and showing me images. But in that same feed and um, have I been trained, you will see many dozens of images, if not considerably more, and you can scroll through those. I can see numerous images of mine from one image um, because there's a lot of consistency in some of my images, like uh, black and white infrareds or whatever. Um, uh, so that's basically how I ended up getting a rough idea of images. Um, the, uh, and, and there was no reason for me to believe that this just didn't continue because um, I have literally thousands of images posted on Flickr. I have uh, stuff on Vero. Um, uh, but, uh, I, you know, I, and someday maybe, uh, maybe somebody might think I'm good enough to be a style that they might ask for, but I doubt that's today. It has to be trained specifically with your name attached to the image. That's why it has images of mine and it has images of yours, but it's not remaking them. But if you ask for Afghan Girl by Steve, Steve McCurry, uh, yeah. um, it will come up pretty darn close to Afghan Girl, not exact. And it's actually banned on mid-journey. You cannot uh, ask for Afghan Girl. You cannot ask for anything by Steve McCree. They're banned terms, and they can oh. get you suspended. So if you're, if you're, if it's trained on you by name, then you become a style. But neither gotcha. of us are in there as styles. Yeah, this, this, it's worth saying that um, the algorithms can choose how few images to create a uh, a new generated image from and i think there is a, there is something ethical and legal about how many source images something should use so it may be if you generated a created an ai system and just sourced the images from steve mccurry's photographs or mark adamacy's photographs it's quite possible that it will generate things that that are almost identical to them um but that, that's, that's a choice that the AI systems can make on how varied. Are you talking about a data set that would be Steve McCurry? Or, um, yeah, you, uh, you, uh, you could create, you could create a sort of data set just out of Steve McCurry's photographs. Well, if you I, to, I, and and yes, to be clear, yeah. though, to be clear, though, that's a choice that the 
user prompter is making too, right? I mean, it's it's instrumental that the that the user prompt for that. The AI yes. is not going to do that itself. No. So there's a necessary third party intermediate in the form of the person who's generating the prompt. Yes. So, you know. What the is that? You can have a data set that's trained on it. So there, there has been artists that there have been data sets that people made and uploaded free for st stable diffusion that are just one artist. A dead Japanese <laughs> animator was one of them. Then there's wow. people who the systems have been what's called overtrained on, like perhaps Sally Mann, Steve McCurry, etc. That just happened because their work is so prevalently out there on the internet. And then there's choices that the the uh, AI company makes, right, in what they're going to include in their five billion set data set. And then there's choices that the user makes in terms of whether they're going to prompt using a name or not. And yeah. if they prompt using a name and the system has been trained on it by name, it will come up with images in the dialogue. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe that's a perfect segue for us to transition into the next segment, because I feel like we've got a pretty good understanding of kind of how it works and what it does. But I would love to talk about how it's being used, um, especially by artists and photographers. So Diana, if you could kick us off and tell us how you use it as a part of your particular workflow. So for me, it's a tool like other tools. I taught digital media, including imaging and, and lens-based work like video. And, and so for me, it's just one more tool in my tool set. Am I likely to put out a, a straight AI image or a, more likely a series of straight AI images as photographs? Not so much. Have I? Yes. And it actually won an award from Lens Culture in the Black and White Awards recently. But the project is about AI. It's about where does the pro where does a photo where does it become a photograph? Does it become a photograph? Where does it become the user and where is it AI? So the whole project is really questioning that the boundaries of technology. So in that case, yes. I made a project about AI, using AI. And I've made another project using AI as part of it, but also hybrid. And most of my work is what I would call hybrid work, where I combine it with my own f photographs, or I start with my own photographs and I upload them. It's not a training set. It's different. If I gotcha. had resources, financial resources, I would make a training set of just my work from 1995 forward and be really happy to just work with that for the rest of my life, adding new ones as they appear. But I don't have that financial resource to train a data set. So what I can do is I can upload images up to 12 is as far as I've gotten in one single prompt. And I can just make an image with no text using my own images as the guidelines 
for what it's going to create based on my own work. And since that has become available around November, the first week of November, that's primarily how I use the tool. Sometimes I refine from there, adding text on after. Sometimes I take something I get, and I'm never happy with like, let's say, the first rev. It typically takes me a couple of hundred revs of it to get more what I want, even just working with my own images. Um, but I then combine that with my own photography or with digital painting and drawing or a combination of those. And it's just one more thing. I'm super cognizant of the fact that the copyright world in AI is a wild west that's not going to be sorted out for at least probably 10 years not effectively sorted out for at least 10 years because they're still way behind dealing with digital media stuff. I was teaching, you know, a class that dealt with copyright in digital media at one point in time. And, you know, the Obama case was just coming up during that. It still hasn't changed that much since then. The Shepard Ferry one, the the thing with Shepard Ferry, is that what you're referring to with the Obama case? Yeah. Okay. That's the that's the hope drawing, the Obama hope drawing. Yes, uh, that yes. was uh, that was basically a modified photograph from an AP photographer. Stolen. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. I'm really cognizant of the fact that this is going to be a wild west. This is a very new technology, and I don't want my work to end up in court one day. So the more I do after the fact to the things I generate, the less somebody can say. She stole that from me, even if it started with my own work to begin with as image prompts. You know, I've yep. started with an image prompt. I've altered the work. It's very hard to claim I stole that work. And when I do use names, and I do, I'm, I'm not going to lie and say I never do. I make weird combination of names. Early on, I put in a ton of names of artists and photographers and generated photographs because I was mostly interested in photography using their name as the prompt. So I had sort of a a working whiteboard of knowing what it would generate with each person's name. And then I've, I've I always combine those to make ones that generate things that look like my work, which is my whole deal with it. I want the work to look like my work, not like somebody else's work. So I've come up with combinations of names that might include like Deben Corn, Sally Mann, Sarah Moon, um, Richard Avedon, all in the same grouping to come up with work that ends up looking like mine. So I'm curious for when you're using AI to kind of help you, guide you through your artistic process, before you start down that path, do you have a very specific end result in mind? Or are you kind of just hoping the AI helps guide you there? Or kind of what does that look like for you? Unless I'm playing around, I generally have very specific ideas of what I want. Okay. I, you know, sometimes I'm just bored and I just play around and put stuff in to see what happens. Sure, to totally. It's, it, I mean, know, I've played with it. It's fun. <laughs> It is fun, but when I'm making serious work, I know what I want, generally speaking. 
Do you mind me asking of you, what is it you get from AI that you d couldn't get through other means? Other means like? Um, just researching on the internet, looking in books, paint, painting the thing, digitally making the artwork yourself directly. I, what what does the AI well, bring to the equation I that, that draw uh, well. is unique? I mean, I don't draw well. I'm not a painter. I'm not a, a, a drafter, drawer. So looking at an image either directly in front of me or on the internet is not going to get me what I want. Hence, yeah. lens-based media being my media of choice. I don't have a pic or the ability to take pictures of everything I want. I don't necessarily have access to models. I don't have a studio. Yeah, so it's facilitating it's facilitating sort of techniques and um, access it's to... facilitating my ability to capture images that I don't have other ways to capture. Yeah. Gotcha. You know, Matt, um, one thing that seems to be missing from this panel is a somebody referring to themselves as an AI artist. Um, the I, I I don't consider Diana's work um, generally as AI art. Um, Diana does some amazing work utilizing AI, um, and uh, you know as as and I am absolutely convinced that what she is doing is completely copyrightable and completely her own work product. Um, but uh, you know one of the issues that uh, when we started talking about this that is coming that's coming up is that we've had discussions about the fact that there will be a point where AI art will win a, la a national landscape award um, uh, uh, and uh, believe me I'm hesitant to call it art but I'm just doing it for the sake of this uh, this particular discussion but uh, I, you know it's a uh, uh, it's, it's a real challenge. I mean, with that, with that, I mean, what do you do? Um, uh, what do you do when, uh, with, you know, like, Di like I said, Diana's work um, is so manipulated and so uniquely hers that uh, I haven't seen anything else like it. I haven't seen, uh, it's not, you know, it's not a conglomeration of of uh, all of the training that's been done off of images in the past. Um, she takes it, modifies it. Well, I think at the, the heart of what you're talking about, Bruce, is kind of this continuum. And I think it, you know, I actually had this question for later, but it's probably appropriate to get a, get a response from each of us on this question, because I think it's at the core of what you're discussing. And really it's like, can you legitimately or I'm sorry, um, shoot. Oh, like at what point can you legitimately call an AI creation a photograph or an image and why or why not? Because I think to your point, so, what Diana's creating, you know, it's, it's um, AI is just a piece of the puzzle where I see a lot of quote unquote photographers out there who call themselves landscape photographers. They're typing a prompt into Midjourney and they're taking exactly what gets spit out of the system, posting it on Instagram and calling it their art. And I think that's where a lot of photographers take exception to that. It's like, are you, an, you're not an artist, man. Like you just type some words into a prompt and then you put it on the internet. Like 
So well, I think that's, I mean, is that the core of what you're asking, Bruce? Um, yeah, that, yeah, that goes to the core of a lot of this. Um, uh, I'll let Arke respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, like, I, I want to avoid diving too deep into, like, defining what art is or what images are or whatever. I mean, I, I don't think it's disputable that what generative AI produces are images. I, I think that's, that's not up for debate. I, whether it's a photograph, I think, is also not debatable. I, I mean, I, the way I see a photograph, I mean, a camera has to be involved somewhere. Um, and, and typically you're, you're dealing with some foundation to something that was actually there. Like as, as someone who, who does a fair bit of, you know, painting where I start with nothing and have to imagine it all and photography where I start with everything and have to imagine my way to something simpler or something more compelling, right? Like the, the two could not be more distinct to me. Right. And, and I, the way I see it, um, using a generative algorithm to generate a photograph, I, I just strikes me as being a little ridiculous. Like how, how does that even work? And, and that's not saying that I'm, a, I'm anti-AI. I'm absolutely not. But as a photograph, like, do you know what a photograph is? Like it's a drawing made from light, right? And it, it's not the, it's not the representation of the drawing on your screen emitting light. It, it's, it's, you know, sort of a, a capture in time. And, and you can make modifications to it and you can you can dodge and burn it and you can you can make deep modifications to it in Photoshop as people often do, right? But you start at its core with something that was there at some point that someone other than you could have seen, and then you you captured some version of it and then you you modify it to get to a point where you are. But a, a generative imaging process doesn't do that. You know, a generative, a generative imaging process does not require a camera at all, right? It does not require an image capture device at all. It, it, is a, um, it is a system that learns based on images that are provided to it and then uses those to sort of pattern a new thing that did not exist before, right? And, and so I just, I think it's pretty clear cut. And that's why I feel like the impact of these types of systems on a photographer's livelihood should be quite limited, right? If you're a landscape photographer, I, you know, I've done a fair bit of that on my own. I've done it in workshops. Like I'm there for the experience. I'm not there. I mean, the images are fine, but, and some people are there for, you know, putting their tripods in the exact spot that you, Matt, might put your tripod. But, but a lot of us are there to like, just experience this, the spot and figure out how do I compose? How do I build a scene out of all this complexity and make something compelling out of it? And some of, it aren't, some of us aren't even there for that. We're just there to be cold and miserable or, or whatever. Right. And, and enjoy nature that way. And, and how do you, AI can't substitute for that. AI can't take photos of your wedding, right? AI can't capture that event that you're trying to shoot. AI can't, I mean, it might be able to do editorial stuff in the fashion and design space, but it's, it's kind of easier to just have, have a model and a costume and some lights and do it that way. Right? So I, I mean, I see to me the the real heart attack in this space is happening in the commercial art space. People who are doing concept art for the big content creation houses, video game companies, the major studios—they're the ones that are having a heart attack right now. I don't. Yeah. I don't see photographers as really being um, really threatened by this. But I mean, that's just my take. I, I don't know what other people think. Yeah, and another. Two people rose their hand, but I just wanted to say one more thing. Um, just a couple of days ago, I did a podcast with uh, one of those types of photographers, Arca, like a very big commercial studio, and he he is freaking out. Like you could just tell. Yeah. And I, I was like, "Oh, you're like 
very scared, way more scared than any photographer I've ever talked to. So I think you're right. I think that niche is very worried about what AI is going to do to their profession. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it, what one, we can talk semantics about what art is and what photography is, and it's, it's, it's really besides the point. But if we want to describe what AI images are, they're, and the ones that look like photographs, it's photorealistic painting. That's the closest it gets. And with the same flexibility that a photorealistic painter can come up with anything, doesn't have to look real, doesn't have to look, doesn't have to look photographic. It can be, it can look photorealistic, but have completely imaginary components with a painted corner or whatever. Um, but it, going going to this challenge that certain photographers are going to have, I would agree. We're, we're talking about a transformative event that's going to shake up a whole industry in the same way that photography did for art so art before the um, dawn of photography if you wanted a, a representation of your house or your cat or your or, or you at a dinner you hired a, a painter and they painted it for you if you wanted some, some representation of a, a chair that you wanted to design you hired a painter you tried to describe what you wanted to this painter and say can you do this or you learned how to paint yourself one or the other and I think this is what the AI is going to do for a lot of uh, photography and painting for that matter is, is going to say actually why, why am I trying to describe what I want to a third party to do something when I can just do it straight to the AI which will do it as well it may not do it as well or, but it's, at the moment it does it cheaper qu more quicker and I can iterate my ideas faster through it I may hire a painter at the end of it or I may hire a photographer at the end of it so yeah it's going to inject into the space and make things very difficult for a lot of people but that's how industries change It'll be interesting to see what happens. Adapt or uh, die. Diana. I predict that within five years, people are going to consider photographic imagery generated by AI, which is not concept art, which is not illustration, not painting, not printmaking. Because all those styles can be generated by AI. Photographic imagery generated by AI will be called AI, will be called photography. I predict. We'll come back to this five years from now and we'll see if I'm right or wrong. I predict it will be. Same way that Photoshop shook up the world in 1990, as I came up in art in the time of Photoshop, and I spent 15 years of my life from being a student onward, being told by people who were artists that my work was not art because the computer made it for me. Same thing is happening, happened with mobile. It wasn't art because the phone made it for you. And the same thing is happening now with AI. Oh, I typed some words in and, you know, it's not really art because you didn't have to do anything besides type words in. Well, it's a lot more complicated than just typing words in to get something that looks like what you have in your head as that image versus what it wants to give you. And it is art. It is, there is an art to doing that well and coming out with what you wanted, not what it wanted. But I do believe that the photograph, that the photograph changed because of digital, the photograph changed because of mobile, and the photograph will change because of AI. And I think all artists should be scared. But I also think there is a great opportunity there for all artists. 
it is sort of, you know, adapt or die. But what makes art any different than any other industry? You know, when um, GM was putting people out of work in the 70s, did artists care? No, because it wasn't their job. It was the people on the factory line. When clothing moved to Mexico and Sri Lanka in the 90s, did artists care? No. Now all of a sudden artists need to care because, oh, it's me. Well, the thing is, it's always been someone. It's always someone who was put out of a job by technology. And this time it's artists. And artists need to adapt or die. And that adaptation might be taking in these tools. But it might be finding a way to differentiate what they do well enough that the tool can't create it. Right. You no. Know? Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Um, Bruce, were you going to say something? Yeah. Um, first off, Mid Journey didn't exist this time last year. Um, uh, I, we didn't know what stable diffusion was or any of this stuff this time last year. Um, chat GPT didn't exist two months ago. Um, it is happening so fast right now. Um, it's, it's, uh, one argument I would make is that we aren't ready for this. In any form, are we ready for this? Um, uh, additionally, uh, one thing I didn't mention in the introduction is I own a design firm. Um, we do, we buy a lot of stock photography. Um, uh, if you guys may have heard that Shutterstock is now supplying uh, the, uh, the platform for people to make stock images. Um, uh, uh, those images, I can almost guarantee you that those images, if Tim makes it, it'll be available for me to buy from Shutterstock. Um, I, I could, uh, I mean, Arca may or may not agree with me, but I could probably go take Tim's image, image res it up, uh, uh, content-aware, fill out any of the watermarks and use it without any repercussions if I wanted to. It's probably just easier to pay the 20 bucks a month and get my 30 images or so. Uh, and uh, I would bet that Tim wouldn't get a dime for those images if I used them. Um, uh, we're creating content. When we're doing just AI only, we're creating content for uh, multi uh, multinational corporations, billion dollar companies. They can take that content and use it without repercussion. Disney is on one side of the argument. Companies like Facebook and Google are on the other side. Um, I, I, this isn't a uh, altruistic thing that it's going to end up being for, you know, the benefit of mankind. I mean, a real simple <laughs> way to look at this is um, Google used to have a slogan. Well, they still have it, but they moved it way down their list. They had a slogan called Don't Be Evil. Um, that slogan is basically at the bottom of their list right now. I mean, literally, they have a list of things they care about. That used to be at the top of the list. Um, uh, and there's a reason they're moving these things. They understand that, that, um, uh, that what can be perceived as evil by some people is a problem. Um, so I, 
you know, I and I agree with you, Diana. I do think that um, this stuff is going to be termed uh, photography way more common than it is right now because right now people are calling them photographs. Um, because if I don't, if I can post something on Vero that I created in, say, Midjourney. There's people on Vero doing this, um, and they're saying I'm an AI artist. Uh, the 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 only contribution they have to that work is they supplied the string of words. Now, the string of words may be something that's copyrightable or uh, intellectual property, but not the image um, uh, as it currently sits. Well, 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 I, well definitely. I don't agree with that. Yeah, yeah I, I think, don't agree with that. But yeah. we'll actually um, we'll actually dive way deep into that a little bit later, mm -hmm. Bruce. Because I know Arca is, he's, he's chomping at the bit because he's got a whole bunch of stuff he's going to share with us about that. But, um, you know, maybe maybe this is a good turning point for the conversation um, because I think, Bruce, I can kind of hear it in your voice a little bit. And we, we started to touch on it. And I don't want to go too long on it, but I'm curious just for each of you real quick, kind of relating to art and photography, I'd love to hear you tell us how AI excites you and or frightens you as it relates to the future of photography specifically. And Bruce, why don't you go first? Um, well, for me, it, it's neither. I'm a bit annoyed by AI um, <laughs> because I, I see people referring to themselves as AI artists. And like I said, they're simply supplying a string of words it kicks out a bunch of images and they're choosing an image and they post that image. That I find annoying and I find it annoying that, you know, there are people doing that without saying what it is. Um, and I, I, I'm seeing on social media AI images being featured as uh, photography. Um, I, there is a real distinction though that needs to be made here. Um, I, there's a big difference between AI tools and images created from AI, uh, from a description. With AI tools, I could be taking an image I have and maybe resing it up from, you know, 2000, to, uh, 2000 by 3000 pixels to 6000 by 9000 pixels because I want to make a big image. I could be using it to sharpen an image I made, but in every case, it's working off of an image that's based on my, um, uh, my human inconsistency. Um, uh, you know, it's working. I pointed a camera. Uh, I took a picture. Uh, and that's what it's working from. It's not creating an entirely new image. I, okay. I hate I, just a quick one on that one because it's really interesting. There may well be copyright infringement from your uprising process because <laughs> the uprising process uses source material just like AI does so if you have for instance a face that's at very low resolution in that image it will find a face that looks like it and substitute it into your image and that face could you're relying on the fact that the AI company has not sourced any copyright images in its training set for that AI uprising good luck proving that though yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, Diana, what excites you or or frightens you as it relates to photography? 
Well, I'm not actually frightened as it relates to photography personally. I, I like I said, for me, it's a it's a cool tool. It's an addition to my toolbox. I really am uh, liking the work I'm getting from it. At the point where I'm bored with it, I'll stop using it. Um, you know, I don't do much etching these days, but at a time I did. So, you know, for me, it's it's a new toy, and it's fun, and it's interesting, and it it's a challenge for me, like a new challenge, to make it make work that looks like me, to bend it to my will and not submit to its will, is the challenge for me, to Love make it. work, photographs that. that look like mine. And I do call them... AI-mediated photographs or post-photography. Um, but I haven't called them flat-out photographs yet. But I do foresee in the future I will. I'm just not ready to take that heat yet. Not yet. Um, <laughs> but AI does frighten me in quite a lot of ways. Not particularly art. AI frightens me in, in deep fakes in medical uses, in all kinds of things. It is in every aspect of our lives. And most people don't think about it. Like, mm -hmm. artists are in this big uproar about AI and art and who can be called an artist. But there's a, these 10,000 other things it's doing in our life every day. And those things frighten me much more. Right. What about for you, Arka? Uh, well, I, so... I'm coming at it from the perspective of a fairly traditional artist and a fairly traditional photographer. I mean, I, I don't have problem processing images quite a bit. I don't know if I'm quite like natural landscape photography material, but, but I do kind of like the idea of taking something that was there and using that as the basis for my image. Um, I, what I think is great about AI is it's a great tool for just seeing things in ways you haven't seen them before. Like, a text prompt and a visual image are two very different things. And and, and I can go into mid-journey, type in a text prompt, and I see some crazy stuff. I'm like, whoa, I didn't think about this from that perspective before. Let's iterate that a little bit. Let's let's work on that a little bit. But but if anything, you know, it's it's moving me back, it's it's moving me away from digital work, which is what's interesting. Like I'm going straight back to oil at this point because what I perceive is going on and what's going to happen with AI art is that the, there will be a renewed value in the original experience and the original piece, even more so than before. And so, like, uh, everything I do now, I used to do plenty of digital, you know, drawing, painting, and I still iterate digitally because it's such a fast workflow. But when it comes time to do fi finished work, I really prefer to work in oil on board because, like, it's a real thing and it's an original and someday someone will be intrigued by that, right? Like somebody made that with their hand. And I think that, that, that that's enduring. I don't think that's ever going to disappear. You know, people try to make it disappear with, with the NFTs and all this, but you know, in the end, NFTs kind of flopped because it's like, it's still a digital file. It's not really non-fungible. It just has a little, little blockchain tag on it that makes it seem like it's non-fungible. And I think, you know, photography is the same way. Like there's going to be, the the actual picture of the person and showing some symbols of the person the actual picture of the event the actual picture of the site that you went to that you hiked to that you worked hard to scout and figure out how to shoot and there, and there's going to be the ai generated version of it and you know i don't think the ai generated version is going to have the same value i think if there's anything that scares me it's that the um 
the AI tools make it so easy to create at a high level uh, that the skills required to do that without the AI may atrophy in society. Kind of like what happened with, you know, the, sort of the modern art revolution and postmodernism and all that. Like the, 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 the Bergeros of the world, the figurative painters, they're just like, oh, we don't need those guys anymore. We got cameras for that, right? I mean, cameras were very disruptive to photography. They were considered art for the first 50 years of their existence, right? And then, and then people just stopped painting portraits very much because it's like, you can use a camera for that. Why, why bother? And uh, I think that's terrible because I love painting portraits. It's like, it's like that's how you spend time with a subject and learn a subject really well. And, and um, not having to do that and not having to develop that skill set, I think that would be a real loss. And, but, you know, do I think it'll actually happen? No. I think humans want to create stuff. They always want to create stuff. And it's not going to, you know... Like there will be the people who don't want to put in the time to learn that, how to do that. So the AI is a shortcut for them. And that's fine. I'll use that input into my own creative process. I, all, I often do, right? So I'm glad it's here. But um, I don't think it's ever going to supplant like sort of the more traditional forms of human creativity. Like that's why we see backlash to film, backlash to realist art, backlash to all kinds of things. Because people are interested in that. They want that. And they mm -hmm. want that original experience. So... Yeah, just to piggyback off what you said, Arca, I think for me, I think it actually is an opportunity for, especially in landscape and nature photography, to further differentiate ourselves in terms of showcasing how our work has more value in terms of representation of an experience or something that I had a personal, actual physical connection to creating, um, which some people are going to value and some people aren't, and that's fine, right? Um, and I think it also provides a mechanism through which you can offer services like, hey, you can either sit at your computer and imagine what it would look like, or you can come with me and I'll show you in person what it'll look like. Mm -hmm. And that's why, um, you know, the VR stuff isn't really taking off like people thought it was because people actually value real life experiences like they want yeah, to. And you look like an, and you look like an idiot doing the VR stuff. It's like you're walking into walls and stuff like this is not a real experience. Like what, why would I do this? Like, I look like a complete moron. Like yeah. go out and hike somewhere and yeah. actually, you know, like get fitter, get, get closer to nature instead of like sitting in your house, walking into walls with your VR headset. Like, just... <laughs> right. Right. What Sorry. About... Uh... No, you're good. What about for you, Tim? I'm, I'm, I think it's amazing. I'm I'm excited about what it's what it's capable of and what it can do for people. Um, and also, like Arker and Matt here, I think it's a massive opportunity for photographers to to work to differentiate themselves. I think it's commoditizing uh, the wow image. That's one of the things it's definitely doing. The 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 instant amazing wow photograph of the landscape will not have value in the same way as it did before when everybody can create it. What people now value are stories. People want to hear stories and people want to know about artists. That's, that's been the truth forever. And I think it's, it will be the truth going on and amplified more so. You can do it without so easily. Yeah. Um, and also people it, it working in projects. I think it will be very hard for AIs to, to build a, a set of images around an idea um, a concrete idea or emotion or whatever to build something consistent through that that's based in reality um, and also geographic projects that portray an idea 
So there, there's a there's a big space you can go for that AI will never get. I saw Diana no, shaking I her head. AI will get it. AI can do it now. Give it six more months. AI yeah. can do it now. I, not, I can not for concrete, not for concrete ideas in the real world. I would and say. And I don't need to be like Chris Castanova and copy somebody else's uh, copyrighted character to do it. Can start with my own images, create my own character, and recreate that character, recreate that place. I hmm. think you can, but I don't think that that takes away from what you said about the value that an artist adds on that story. I mean, that's why I want to make work that looks like me, because that's my story that's coming out of that AI or that camera or whatever media I use. And that's what somebody's buying for me. They're not buying it because it's AI art. They're buying it because they relate to that story I tell. And so how well somebody tells that story, no matter what media they use, is going to differentiate them. So I agree with you that that story is really important. Hmm. Well said. All right. Well, I, we're going to come back to some of the other stuff too, but I, I want to dive into the legal aspects of AI and copyright law. So Arka, can you tell us first if artwork derived from AI is going to become eligible for copyright? I, I think the, the short answer is yes. And I think we're already on the cusp of that. So the copyright register has, they had, they had one case where a guy submitted a piece of art that was entirely AI generated without the assistance of a prompt. And the copyright register said, no, we're not going to register that because there's no sort of human aspect to that creation. He's going to appeal that to the federal circuit in DC. And I, I think there's a decent chance that he, he wins. We'll Is see how it Thaler? goes. What's that? Thaler. Yeah. Thaler. Exactly. So I, this, he's got a shot at winning, I think, and overturning that because the copyright register has to listen to what the courts say. And the court, because the court's sort of the ultimate arbiter of what the law is. Uh, but there, are, there's more recent cases. Uh, there was a, a woman who tried to submit a graphic novel, Chris and a graphic novel, yeah, Casanova, and 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 she, all of the images in there are sort of AI generative, and uh, the copyright office has asked for clarification as to you know what, how much of the, how much of its AI and how much of its her own creation. But I, I think that. I think that's going to be deemed creative because as long as there's some human element to the creative process, then there's a copyright protection. Now, how, how thick that copyright protection is, 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 is going to be difficult to say. And, and, and we may be going through that in court for a while, but that's, the, that's always the first step of every copyright question. Like, is it copyright eligible, right? Uh, right now, we're not seeing a lot of AI artists, so to speak, um, suing people for copyright infringement. So I guess you know that's when we're really going to see that the, the the rubber hit the road on that question. I I don't mm. put a lot of stock in what the copyright office is doing because the copyright office is a federal agency that's subordinate to the courts. So I'm subordinate in that they have to listen to what the courts say about what the law is, right? Um, but but when somebody sues you for infringing, you know their copyright on an AI generated image, well then we're going to see what the courts have to say about that. Um, but for now, I think we're moving very strongly in the direction of, yes, there will be. Okay. And Bruce, you wanted to say something? Yeah. And actually, I have a question for Erka. Um, let's just say OpenAI and Dolly, I create something and I claim copyright. Wouldn't AI or OpenAI have 
some claim to that as well? Apparently not, because they're relinquishing it. They're, they're letting you do whatever you want. I mean, they, they could argue that they do, but they're not right now. They're letting you have it. Do so you, they can give do you it. Think, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, do you think that Google, because uh, I know that Google and Facebook are both going deep into this. Do you think that they would? I think if it's just the machine aspect, the, the copyright office is, is a little hostile to the idea of, of the machine side of it. They, would ha they can't be hostile to the human prompt side of it, right? Because that's, that's coming from a human. Now, what happens when you start using chat GPT to generate your prompts? Well, that's a whole different story, right? Because then you've got to oh, figure out like, how exactly you prompted chat GPT to give you those prompts in the first place that you're now feeding into the AI system. So you've got you know, machine layer upon machine layer upon machine layer. Where is the human input, right? It's like you're AI the inception. <laughs> It, it is. Yeah. It's, it's 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 just like where where do the where does the human hand come into the process? I mean, you're almost at the point of just like it's like a thought, right? Like, is is a thought copyrightable at that point? And I mean, I think, you know, the the further you get from the human side of creation, the thinner the copyright becomes. Let me just put it that way: the less defensible it is, right? So. If I take a bunch of phone numbers and compile them into a phone book and I say my contribution is alphabetizing them, it's not going to be copyrightable. And there's, a, there's case law on that. There's Supreme Court case law on that. I, someone I tried, someone the, tried to copyright a phone book, you know, so that happened. I, I assume the, uh, the algorithm is copyrighted. No. Yes, the software is, is copyrighted, but nobody's copying the software, right? I they're copying the, the, if anything, they're using I, the outputs. And that's where the issues are going to arise. Can you copyright software? Because uh, I was Tim, always told you... you couldn't copyright software. In America, you can. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's written down, right? I mean, it's written down. It's unique code, so you can totally copyright the software. Uh, Diana, were you going to say something else? Yeah. Um, so I have two questions for you, Arca. One, did you read the uh, lawyer response for Cash to Nova? Because I did. I haven't had a chance to read the lawyer response, no. I, I'm reasonably certain she's going to win, but... I, I, I um, it's I just... a really strong response, and I think she'll win, too. I have mixed feelings about her winning, because while I think the graphic novel part is all her, I, I personally do have issues with her copying the style of an existing character to make the character for that book. That's my Oh, you mean, you mean the Zendaya? Like, like the Zendaya use... character is copied from another. She, she prompted using one artist's name. And and I have an issue with that. Like that that's my Yeah, so the so the issue there is that she used um Zendaya as a um in her prompts to to sort of generate the images of that particular character. Um I mean there could be a Zendaya is that's not a is that isn't that an actress? It's not an actual character, is it? It's an it's an actress. I'm not sure. I, I'm I, sure. I, I it's not my kind of work. Yeah, I'm fairly sure that's a person, and and so like there could be so identity issues there. I don't know if there's copyright issues there. Like, you know, you, the, the, Zendaya could say like, "Hey, you can't use my identity for this purpose," and that's a separate right that she's asserting. It's not a well, it's not a copyright violation so much. So I think, although she's I a think... she's she's a famous person, so she may be constrained in her ability to restrict people to to use her likeness because she's so public. Yeah, go on. yes, Matt. I was just gonna say I think. My next question is going to really ferret out a lot of these questions and answer them. Oh, wait, can I ask my second question first? Oh, yes, go ahead. So my second question for Arca is, did, do you think that the Warhol case is going to impact AI at all? Yeah, it could. Because, because um, 
and we can get into that. I mean, the Warhol case could significantly constrain the fair use doctrine, right? And it's interesting that that's happening because it's coming up from it's that case is bubbling up from the Second Circuit, which is the which is the circuit that manages New York, Connecticut, uh, sort of the eastern states around New York, and all the New York City cases come up come up through the Second Circuit. So. Um, I think Tim, you had written an article about the um, Cariou versus Prince, um, where the 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 Rasta photographs, yeah, like basically yeah. Prince kind of like painted a bunch of blotches over those, and and the 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 Second Circuit said, yeah, that's fair use. Well, they yeah. they went in a very different direction with with Warhol, where you know they tried to argue that, that basically Warhol's trying to argue that by taking photographs from the from the plaintiff, I forget her name at the moment, um, but taking photographs from the plaintiff and sort of turning them into, into ink prints, you sort of change the meaning of the photographs, but you can still recognize that the ink prints come from the photograph, kind of like the Shepard Ferry case from many years ago with the Obama Hope poster, right? Yeah. Um, and, the, and, and the Second Circuit said, no, you can't, you can't look at the meaning, you have to look at how similar it is to the original work. So it could significantly curtail, if the Supremes agree, and it's the the Supremes are sitting on it right now. The Supreme Court is sitting on right. it. They've already heard arguments on it. So, right. if they agree with the Second Circuit, it could significantly constrain the fair use doctrine. But, but with respect to AI art, I think it's a little challenging because of the way the AI output often works. Like you see a lot of AI output that you really can't find that much similarity. Like you sure with Afghan Girl you can, right? That's a very iconic photograph. But a lot of AI output, it's really hard to trace that back to any right. particular original work. Mm -hmm. And so unless you can figure out how it did that, how did the model do that, then, you know, it's, it's hard to even prove that copying happened, let alone whether the copying was a fair use. Uh, Tim. All right. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, Tim, you're going to ask. One of, one of my questions is based around the role of influence in art and the way that the AI system is it's really an influence engine. It's it's taking a huge set of prior work and letting it letting its internal system be an influence on an end product. It isn't it isn't copying essentially. Is there any implications on how that could backfire on human influence in terms of AI? So if 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 they get prosecuted and people say, well, AI has copied because it has taken these original materials and is influenced. Is there any chance it might go the wrong way and actually be more restrictive on the ability for artists to use? Well, I think that, I mean, I think there you're looking at a First Amendment problem, right? Like the copyright law is kind of at tension with free speech in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so the courts are always balancing, you know, how much copyright protection do we afford private parties versus how much, how, to what extent does that infringe on free speech? which is one of the reasons why the style is not copyrightable. It never has been. Yeah. Uh, that's something we talked about earlier. Like, you, you know, whatever your style is, Mark Adamus has a style that's very particular. Does, he can't protect that. He can never profit from that style because he doesn't have a copyright on it. He has a copyright on individual images, right? So individual works and his writings, those are all copyrighted. But it, that's an expression protection. It's not a, like, style you can't really... You know, you can't build, you can't build a way, you can't explain how to record that in a tangible medium, so you can't get protection on that. So I think what you're saying is, 
if if AI is deemed a copy based on the way that it operates, the way you've discussed how it operates, which is not really copying, but like you're saying, because it's kind of sort of using these images and building new things, like I would say that if a court were to go in that direction, and I think it's unlikely, but I think if a court were to go in that direction, it's probably going to limit it to the AI system. Yeah. Because yeah. the AI system doesn't have free speech rights, whereas humans do, uh, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. But I I would go further. I would say that if, if I was Midjourney's lawyer, that's exactly what I would be arguing. Like, artists take pictures off the internet all the time. They build a reference file. They mix and match pieces of those images to build original works, right? And very rarely, if ever, can you sue them for that. You know, it's always deemed to be you know either not copying, de minimis copying, or a fair use. Right, and there are cases on this. So, so why would you apply? Why would you treat an AI system that's doing pretty much the same thing differently? And and what you'll find the plaintiffs are doing is they're saying that's not what the AI system does. It's a collage. It just copies stuff and puts it all together. And and you know it's wrong. Like, but they have to characterize it that way. If they don't yeah. characterize it that way, they don't they don't stand a chance. So that's why they're making these you know in my view dubious representations to the court as to what the system does in order to sort of get past the early motion for summary judgment or not, I'm sorry, motion dismiss stage. Yeah. Anyway, right. sorry, I'm, 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 well, I'm, I'm digressed. And that's why, you know, the term what's legal and what's ethical is a Venn diagram with some overlap, but not complete overlap because just because you can do something and it's legal to do something doesn't mean it's ethical or humane, but we'll, we'll maybe talk about that. Well, I mean, the only place where ethics really matters the only place where ethics has true consequences is in the legal profession. It's one of the few places where ethics, right. and, and, and in the medical profession too, but like, you know, you can almost think of ethics as like a law upon law or right. law upon medicine. But right? I mean, in, in art and photography, there's really no consequence for ethics other than... There's your, no, there's no, there's no, yeah, exactly. There's no... Other than your peers role. thinking you're a piece of dog shit, but that's a whole other... Right, right. That's a whole other and, thing. And so, um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, so... So, so Arco, what is what is at the core of all of the legal claims that we're hearing about in regards to AI? Uh, well, you know, there's a there's a couple of different arguments that are being advanced, but if I was to put it in a nutshell, that their problem is you've got all this art that's been scraped off the internet. A lot of it's copyrighted. Not all of it, mind you, but a lot of it's copyrighted, right? And that the algorithms are in some way sort of collaging these art pieces together in ways that result in either direct copies or derivative works. That's the theory. And that and that's what they're going to the court with. And they're and they're they're trying to get cop infringement damages, they're trying to get an injunction to stop the AI systems from continuing to function. Uh, and they're trying to get um, also the other causes of action like unjust enrichment and unfair competition and a bunch of other smorgasbord of um, state law, state law claims, which you know often often sort of follow the the the, the core IP claims that that come with this stuff. And you know I think in order to understand why I'm pessimistic about some of these these theories, I think it's important to understand exactly, in a nutshell, how copyright analysis works. It, I, I can boil it down to three steps, right? The first step is, is the original work protected under copyright? 
right? Which kind of gets to the first question we were asking about whether AI can be copyrighted, right? Uh, the second, and, and, you know, people tried to claim that phone books were copyrighted. So, you know, that's where those eligibility questions come up, right? Um, the, 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 second, the second question is, uh, was, the, was that work actually copied by the defendant, right? And, and so in order to prove that, you have to show that there's either substantial or striking similarity between the original and whatever the accused copy is. And, and that's sort of measured by the standard of the reasonable person. So it could be a jury standard, it could be a judge sitting as a jury standard, but you have to be able to kind of tell that like, okay, I can kind of see from that that it copies from the original, right? So there has to be an original piece and there has to be a way that you can connect that original piece to the copy and show that there's some copying happened, right? And, and then the third thing is if, if it's clear that some copying occurred, is there an excuse of some sort? to prevent it, to, to, to sort of permit that copying. And mo the most common excuse is fair use, right? That, or not the most common, but the most famous excuse is fair use. It's, it's the one that gets litigated the most because it has the most sort of gray boundaries, right? There are other excuses like you were licensed to it or whatever, you had an implied license, there's a bunch of stuff, but, but fair use is a, is, a, is a biggie. It makes the news a lot, right? And, and so this is why I think if you look at, the, if you look at those three steps, I think it, you know it's a challenging thing for the plaintiffs to sort of make this case because there's usually little or no similarity between training images that are you know copied and the AI output. So and 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 also it can be very difficult to trace any particular AI output to a training image or a set of training images. So how do you prove up copying? That's step two of the analysis, right? How do you prove up copying? I think it's pretty easy for them to prove step one, which is like there's, there's copyright in the original work because they made it, right? But then you have to show that like it was copied. And and if you can't show that, then what? Like maybe, maybe, you, maybe you have an image that you think was copied and then, you know, they go through the mid-journey prompting archive and they figure out that's not the image that was used. Some other image, some other set of images were, were used to sort of, you know... Right. Someone out. else's photo of Tunnel View or Mesa Arch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, if, and if you're using AI to make Mesa Arch, like, I'm sorry for you, but like, no, still, that was like, a joke, it's, but you know, I know, I, I get it, but like, that's the thing. <laughs> like, and, and there's, a, there's, there's, there's the issue of like, you know, is Mid Journey the real infringer here? Like, let's say I decide to prompt, you know, Mickey Mouse in a mecha suit from Gundam Wing, right? And I get Mickey Mouse in like this powerful robot suit from a Japanese anime, and I get sued by both the maker of the Japanese anime and Mickey Mouse and and, and Disney. Well, Mid Journey gets sued. Well, Mid Journey can say, well, that wasn't our idea. Like that was the prompter's idea. So go after him. And they're not going to come after me because I'm not. I don't have any money. So they, they really want to go after Mid Journey. Uh, and and so, you know, Mid Journey can keep on sequentially banning terms, like they've already banned Steve McCurry and they've banned Afghan Girl and they've banned a bunch of other stuff to show that, like, we're not encouraging our users to do this, right? Our users sometimes, and when we see our users doing it, we tell them, like, hey, that's copyright infringement for sure. Don't do that stuff, right? So it makes them look good before the court. Um, if you look at the history of cases dealing with data scraping, right, they don't favor the plaintiffs. Uh, the the previous cases that involved data scraping were usually Google cases. Uh, they involved Google images and Google books. And 
in both of those cases, Google was not generating some stable diffusion modified version of, of the work. They were verbatim copying that shit and they were putting it right on the screen for you to look at either as a thumbnail or as you know an annotated version of that book. And the Ninth Circuit said, yeah, that's fine. It's a different purpose for the book. It increases, you know, or the image, it increases user access to that, those materials. Like if it's out of print, people might never see that again. And now people can see it because it's on Google Books. If you're a photographer, you probably love Google Images because it makes your images show up in searches, random searches. And so now people know about you that might not know about you otherwise. So that was that was deemed to be a fair use. And, and so... Um, you know, I, I, th I think one thing that's really notable, if you if you look at um, something that one of the plaintiffs wrote, uh, she said that uh, as I've looked deeper into how exploitative this system is, I realize that there is no precedent to um, <laughs> stop these companies from behaving this way. So let's make some with this class action lawsuit. Well, you don't make precedent by suing people. You make precedent by winning. And um, if the precedent doesn't favor you, it's hard to win, right? Because uh, courts don't want to stick their necks out and get reversed by their bosses, either at the appeals court level or the <laughs> Supreme Court level. So, you know, I'm fairly pessimistic about it from a substantive level. I also think it's, you know, a, a difficult challenge from a procedural level because as we've been discussing here, if anyone's been following how good the AI systems are getting, I, I think, um, Bruce, you mentioned these weren't here last year. Some of these weren't here two months ago. I started tinkering with Midjourney in November, and I, I took a break for a while, and I came back in January, and I put in new prompts. I'm like, what the hell happened here? This is so much better than before. That's because version 4 happened, and version 4 is a quantum leap beyond versions 1 and 2. And, and that's in three months. A federal court is not going to issue the injunction, even if they have a perfect case, which for reasons I've discussed, they don't. Um, but even if they had a perfect case, they're not going to get an injunction from the federal court for the next three years. And then that'll be appealed, which is another two and a half years, right? What will the AI be doing in two and a half, three, four, five years? Look at what it's doing in a few months. It may not, the copyright infringement problem may disappear, right? It'll just be its own thing at that point. And I think, Tim, you alluded to that, like the way the system isn't using images in the database. You train it enough and it doesn't need them anymore. It has all the information. It's already built up, right? And and so so then what do you do? And what do you do when the parties move all their operations offshore out of the jurisdiction of federal courts? One of the parties already is offshore. They're in the U.K., right? What happens when everyone else moves offshore? Well, then it's an a game of international whack-a-mole. Plaintiffs can't possibly win that, win that fight, right? Um, and then, you know, the other thing that I would mention, and this, this redounds right back to the artist's insecurity about their own jobs, right? A lot of these people that are, um, one of the plaintiffs, at least one of the plaintiffs is, you know, I think she works for one of the major studios. And, um, a lot of these artists work for video game companies who are run by suits who, you know, are looking at some of the same. They're looking at the same business incentives that everyone else in the business in, in, in that field is looking at, right? Like less labor, lower costs, all these things, right? Um, 
the the nub of all of these lawsuits is this idea that the training sets have copyrighted material. Well, what if the training sets didn't have copyrighted material that was owned by the plaintiffs? Well, there's an easy way to get there, right? The easiest way to get there is for the studios to build their own AIs, train them on their own internal art archives, and then fire all the artists below, say, art director or, you know, art director, you know, like junior art director level, right? Or just not, maybe not fire them, but just, you know, you know artists will get tired of, you know, working the long hours and they'll, they'll move on and they won't hire new ones, right? And, and so at that point, there's no copyright problem, right? Like, because right. the, the studios own all that art. It's all work for hire. So, so then what do you do? Well, right. I mean, the, the concept art, concept art community thinks, thinks they've thought of that. They've hired a lobbyist in, in, or they're trying to hire a lobbyist in DC via a GoFundMe campaign. Um, you know, you got to give them credit for thinking they can out lobby Disney or Google or any of those guys, but you know, they're looking to GoFundMe to the tune of a quarter million dollars. And, um, hmm. I don't know, like it, it seems like a long shot to me, right? Anything is possible, but it seems like a long shot to me. So my take on trying to stop these things using legal means is pessimistic because they move way faster than the law does. And, and the law already doesn't really support them, right? So they have to make major change. They have to get either they have to get courts to stick their necks out and risk being reversed in order to get the law to sort of work in their favor. It's not going to happen for about five years. And legislation is an even dicier proposition. Yeah, I was right? going to say, because like, legislation would be your only other option. And that's, like, yeah, but that's even good luck hundred, in this country. <laughs> good, good luck. I mean, it is impossible, right, to get right. legislation done. Because uh, everyone wants a seat at the table. And this, it's going to be negotiated to nothing. And then it won't get out of committee, you know, in a midterm election or something. After right. a midterm election right. happens. So, so. I'm pessimistic about it. It's kind of like trying to recruit a glacier to stop a, a Bugatti that's evolving to move faster than you are. I mean, the government government instruments are powerful, but they're slow, right? right. And and especially if the glacier is moving in a different direction than where, than where the Bugatti is going, which which is kind of where they're at right now. They're trying to steer the glacier in their direction and then move it faster to crush the to crush their their opponent and. It just seems like they're wasting their time to me. Like they, it, it better to sort of adapt and evolve and try to figure out like how to secure your maybe maybe focus on your bargaining rights. How do you get artists to sort of collectivize their interests and and bargain with their employers a little bit better? Right, um, right, right, right. But even well, artists are not they're not unanimous in their thoughts on how how this AI stuff is supposed to be. Some artists are like, no, this is great, and others are like, no, it's terrible. It's stealing all my stuff. And and so um, it, it's a challenge, and I think it's one that we have to evolve into. Bruce, right. you had a question. Uh, yeah, uh, well, first out, uh, the, the options in Have I Been Trained uh, or whatever with Stable Diffusion are to opt out. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I think it should be to opt in because... Um, if I, because one of the problems that they're, I, you know, we're faced with is uh, many photographers have, you know, dozens, hundreds, or thousands of images that have been trained. And if we do them one at a time, uh, it's just a, it's absurd. 
to try to do it one at a time. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, from what I'm hearing you say, it sounds like we have no right on the to determine the use of our images relative to AI as photographers. Um, do we have the right to to say I do not want my images used for training? I mean, I think you can always. So, so I think there are certain platforms that are making that option available, the opt-out option available. And I, I think, doesn't um, Have I Been Trained give you tools for, for trying to do that, trying to opt out? Yes. As far as I so, know, it's, it's one image at a time. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, it could be that that will develop further in the future. Uh, to what extent that's a cognizable right versus one that the AI systems are sort of granting you uh, just for just to sort of avoid any sort of um, legal uncertainty on their part is is not 100% clear to me. Like I, I actually am not convinced that you have an affirmative right there um, because I like if your images are on Google, if your images on the Internet and and they've been scraped i think the google cases govern what is a fair use right that's the closest precedent we have for governing what a fair use is so so if if, if google could scrape and then verbatim reproduce them for google images then i think an ai using the lion database to to basically generate work that doesn't directly copy yours is is probably also fair game at least I've that's actually, the way I argued if I were their lawyers. I've actually fought a copyright case in one, um, but I am curious how you would define fair use. Oh, I, I don't have to define it. It's in section. It, it, it's uh, it's seventeen USC one hundred seven. There's there's four factors there. Um, we can go over those. Uh, and and I mean, but this the, the thing is, it's a very it's a very um, it's a very developed branch of the law, and even even then, it's pretty fuzzy in places right um but but it you know that there's, there's an educational use there's a transformative use there's a um right the transformative there's, use there's, there's a there's i mean we can we can look at the statute and see all the different examples but i'm it, like to the extent that the use is sort of different from what the original use was that can be transformative to the extent that I, but I also think that to the extent that the images, that the output images can't even be discerned from the original images, you start moving away from fair use and, and just going back to the, the second step of the analysis, which is, was there copying at all, right? Like, if, I, if, if the ordinary person can't see the similarity between the accused image and the original image, then, then how do you prove up copying? to a jury or to a, to a judge sitting as a jury. That, that to me, is the biggest challenge. Right, I mean, stop it. earlier you guys had mentioned the Prince guy. Wasn't he the same guy that, like, printed off a bunch of Instagram screenshots mm -hmm. or something? And then, yeah. like, yes. just, re just, like, put those on a piece of canvas? Yep. And yep. he won. Yep. Like, that's fair use. <laughs> I don't know if he won. I, I think yeah, I thought what happened there was that I, I thought what happened there was that the people whose images were being blown up just blew up their own images and started selling them. There's that. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. out for summary judgment, supposedly. 
one huh. one person said there's one settlement with it and one one of them is out for summary judgment yeah I so if it's, if it's, find the answer to that for a while because that's all he did was add an emoji to them and then print them out that's right yeah I, but, but prince is a prince is a provocateur and, and he's like the modern day provocateur copy artist right like in the 80s there was this other guy his name was coons and he would do the same kinds of stuff like just like push the edge Billboard of stuff. how how obnoxious you could be in in copying someone's work while still not getting into legal trouble and and coons some of the coons cases which also came up from the second circuit are what make it difficult to argue that a collage is necessarily an infringement because there was one case where he painted a woman's foot and it was very clear that he used a, a, as a model a photograph uh, that was shot for some um, some pantyhose company I think I, but it was, it was very clear that he copied that but it was one of many elements in the painting and he won that case because it, right. you know it was trans right. like it, it you just it was one piece of a much larger puzzle right. and you you, you know it was like a, it was like a weird mix of like is the it was like a weird mix of like is there copying and even if there was it's fair use right you know right. so right uh it, it it's a it's a little tricky just separating those two things uh D diana i know you had, had your hand raised now for a while so go ahead yeah um i have a question for you arca about um you, you mentioned Disney and the lobbyists and, and you know, these the stable diffusion um, artist lawsuit, hiring a lobbyist. There's another um, uprising, I guess I might call I it. I mentioned the plaintiffs hiring, a, uh, trying to hire a lobbyist. Right, not, right. Not, there's yeah. A, yeah, there's another uprising um, that involves Disney that's not coming from Disney where there's a group of artists that are trying to encourage people, they aren't doing it themselves, but they're trying to encourage people to generate images using Disney characters <laughs> so that Disney will sue and stop the whole AI thing that way. And I'm curious what you think about that. Oh gosh, I, I can't speculate what's what Disney would do. And my wife works for Disney, so I gotta be super careful about it. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I mean, there's stuff that I, I, I mean, I could try to speculate as to what I would do as a lawyer for Disney, but I, I guess I, I'm just hesitant. I don't know what their motivations are in terms of like, if they want to use AI as part of their own stable, like, like if I'm a, if I'm a major content creator, my dream situation as I see it would be have my own in-house AI make sure there's no public option and that way I can iterate my artwork faster. So, so maybe I'd be okay with shooting the public option in the head. Um, as long as, as long as that means I can, I can go buy it on the cheap, you know, and, yeah. uh, incorporate it into my own operations. But I'm a hundred, I, I, I am, I'm emphasizing it's very, I, I'm a hundred percent speculating. Like this is just like, you know, what might they be thinking? I, I have no right. reason to believe that's yeah, the case. I'm curious, not so much from what you think Disney might do with that, but what you think about that as a strategy, because here's these people, they're, 
not for lack of a better comparison, they're Trump on January 6th. They're stirring up other people to go take action that is of questionable legality. They're not doing it themselves. They're not going out making Disney copies. They're encouraging other artists or other creators to make these images in the hopes that Disney will sue because Disney is well known for suing at the least little drop of a copyright hat. True. So, I mean, if what I would do, so if I'm advising Midjourney in that situation, I'm, I'm going to tell them, ban those words. Don't let those words live in the, in the prompting system. And, you know, that solves a lot of your problem because then you right. sort of get rid of the, the Midjourney actors as being liable. And then they have to target a million people who are prompting and they're not going to do that. All right. Uh, Tim, you had your hand raised as well. Yeah, but, but basically what we're saying is the, the copyright issues are with what has been created by the individual, not the tool, in the same way that you can't see Photoshop for somebody creating a picture of Mickey Mouse. I mean, to the extent Midjourney can fob it off to their users, they're going to love to do that, right? Like, because then they're, they're off the hook. Um, and and they're not and you know individual creators prompters whatever you want to call them i don't i I just don't see the big content houses going after them like what are they going to get like like it doesn't look just just sending them a cease and desist letter is going to cost more than it's probably worth so why bother right right well i think i I think mid-journey can sustain that they can be liable for stuff but you have to prove that you have to prove again like is there copying was it excused and that's gonna be hard right well arca this has been super cool to hear the legal side of things i wanted to ask have us go answer one more question before we end um and i'm just curious from each of your perspectives what are some of the ethical concerns that you see relating to the use of ai as a means of creating quote unquote photographs. And um, if it's okay with you, I wanna go first. <laughs> um, the, the main thing for me is kind of relating back to what Bruce was talking about earlier. When you have people posing themselves or putting themselves out there, saying that they're a photographer and that the work is that they're creating is a photograph um, I do think that that is questionable um, in terms of ethical intent. And also I think it has runs the risk of damaging people that are actually making photographs with a camera because you are run the risk of confusing the audience that exists of what a photograph is. But, you know, that that's a whole other thing. But th- for me, that's the main ethical thing that I have issues with is when people punch in something in the prompt and they create something and then they say look this photograph I captured it's like mm, AI created that based on your prompts let's be clear but that's me um, curious what other people's thoughts are on other ethical concerns don't don't all go at once maybe raise your hand <laughs> uh, I, I guess I'll go ahead Arca um, this is my personal opinion. I, I just don't think you should lie about stuff. Um, and, and lies of omission are 
our lives in a sense, right? Like if you're going to say something's a photograph, I think it, it triggers certain assumptions in people's minds as to what that means. Uh, sort of try to figure out what, what the ordinary person would think a photograph means and then qualify. Like, you know, this is an image that is photographic, but doesn't actually involve real subjects. You know, I, I mean, I don't know, like something like that. Like I don't have a problem with any of this stuff being done. I just think, you shouldn't be scared of the provenance of your images. You never should be, right? Like, they're your images, mm. so talk about them. Talk about yeah. how you made them. That's the story. So well, why do you have to, like, pretend that it was made some other way? It just means that you're not, you're not confident in your process and you're not confident in your... You're not, you don't really know who you are as an artist, so own that. If you're an AI artist, fine. Declare yourself as such. It's okay. Like, some people will think you're, you're not an artist at all, but that's... If that's their problem or your problem or whatever, but don't lie about it. I love that. <laughs> uh, Bruce. Uh, well, I mean, first off, I think it, uh, one issue that I see with AI is a trust issue, and that's been addressed here um, as far as trusting what we're seeing. Um, I think we're getting to a point where um, where when we can like uh like diana mentioned about deep fakes and uh things like that if we can't trust what we're seeing there's there's a serious problem with what's happening with uh with basically uh, i mean humanity i mean uh, uh arca had talked about this uh, and i do the same thing i met you matt because i like experiences i like going places and looking at shit. um and occasionally pointing a camera at it and rarely getting a good picture, but I like doing that stuff. Uh, that's a really important part of this for me. Um, the other thing that I'm concerned about is competency. Um, the, the, less, um, the less energy and effort it takes to create an image um, and the fact that we're not creating it as people, I think dumb downs our society as a whole. Um, uh, this particular group, uh, I'm kind of, you know, I, Matt and I are probably the closest to the two on this subject, but um, you guys are outliers in this stuff. You guys are doing some amazing shit and, and, um, and uh, you know, you're using it as a tool. You're not using it to create a fantasy world in which um, uh, uh, that doesn't exist and portraying it as something that does. Um, uh, Diana, your art is spectacular. I mean, I got to tell you, I look at what you do and I love the result. Um, uh, politically, by the way, we're on the same page. Yes, um, Tim, uh, uh, Tim, your, your, your large format landscapes are just mind blowing. Um, I mean, I just, I love the texture in them. I love the detail. Um, and, and, you know, I, I've just been, uh, I'm concerned about what this does to us as a people over time. And I'm concerned about the speed in which it's happening. Um, and I think, you know, two and a half years from now, there may be an AI discussion on what's the, what's the good of humanity. Um, uh, you know, I, I just don't see this right now happening at this speed with a good end result. 
there may be a good end result 10 years out from now, and we can talk about that, Diana, 10 years, but uh, I just don't see it. Yeah, it's interesting um, because one of the biggest benefits of AI from, I think, most people's perspective is that it's supposed to make parts of modern life easier so that we can spend more time doing things that we enjoy, like creating arts. And when you use AI to do that for you instead, then it's like, I think that's where people's minds get like twisted up is like, you're making it easier to do the thing that I'm and I think people get caught up on that, but I'm curious what what you guys, what other some other people think. Tim or the, Diana? The yeah, camera okay. has always I... lied. It's always filtered through someone's perception. Sure. It doesn't go out and shoot by itself. Well, maybe the drone does, but I mean, it, it doesn't take itself to Yosemite and go, I'm going to position myself here. It's always filtered by somebody. So what somebody decides to capture could be a document or it could be uh, a filtered version of that view. That makes it perhaps more attractive than it actually is in reality. And this happens all the time. I don't really have an issue with that. The issue is when somebody starts calling it documentary. Matt wrote a really interesting article a while back, which is how I met Matt, about um, people who uh, tell stories on the internet about how they um, went to this place and it was 4.30 in the morning and the sun was rising and they were freezing cold and they hiked 20 hours to get to this place and it's all bullshit. They didn't really happen. Like, I have a problem with that. And you could use AI to do that, you know, to make up this whole story. They never even left the warm, cozy bedroom in the middle of the winter, you know. So I have a, a problem with that. But it's it's more than just that because it's, it's really the line between uh, documentary or or journalism, let's say, has been crossed a long time ago. I mean, McCurry got caught, what, 10 years ago now? 12, 15, um, lying about his use of Photoshop. And, and so that line has been crossed a long time ago. I think the bigger problem with that is how do you train what Arca as a lawyer calls the average reasonable human, so to speak, to identify what's fake and what's real because that's the skill people are going to need going forward how do we tell i think the answer is you don't i think the answer is you have computers do it i mean i think we're reaching a point now where you have ai versus ai like if you want to figure out if something is ai generated use a different ai to find the find the hallmarks <laughs> i mean no, I'm serious. Like, that's what's going on with ChatGPT, yeah. right? Like, yeah. there's a huge market for that because people need to know, is this authentically written by this person or is it just written by a computer? Right. And, and the only way to do it is to have an equally sophisticated detective. You know, the forger and the sleuth analogy all over again, right? Like Adversarial networks again. Yeah, um, yeah just a different kind of adversarial. They're different networks this time as opposed to being in the same. Uh, but you've I, still got to get somebody to believe what that AI told you was <laughs> right. Like there's still there's still some sort of educational thing that has to happen on the human end to be able to translate the output of AI in any field to 
process it through critical thought and then come back with a with an answer and the AI can't do that for us and the results of that are clearly evident in US. But I, but I, but I think Diana when we meet back here in five years and discuss whether AI photographs are a real thing like I don't think there will, I don't think there will be a way to train humans to figure out whether the AI is um, it's an AI output or if it's a, a photographic output taken by some other means we're already I mean the only way I can tell now is because AI still can't do hands so the hands are always wrong and the feet are always wrong. Sometimes. But sometimes it can. It's very rare, though. I, I, I can't get the thing to do hands properly, although apparently there's AI plugins that will fix hands. What's that? They're not good at counting. No, they, there, is, there is actually modules for faces and hands. That yeah, there's sub-modules, right? I've seen no some of that. Yeah. Which I mean, is crazy because hands and heads are the hardest things to draw. That's the, like you sort of you establish your 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 street cred as an artist by being able to do hands heads and feet and faces like if you can do those things you can screw up the other stuff and people will still kind of like okay but you know the hands are right so he must know something and he should have right. that fixed in about three or four weeks right I, exactly yeah i mean and by the time this long. podcast comes out it'll be fixed <laughs> um well I was, all i was gonna say is like you know show me the raw file baby that's all i'm gonna say or show me the film negative, you know, like we'll have it. We'll have an AI generator for that too. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, did did you have anything else you wanted to say in regards to my question, Tim? Or are we are we good? I, I, I've got a couple of ni- interesting things at the end of this, which which have have come about. It's uh, there's a recent article in New Scientist that suggests AIs are actually going to run out of source material in a in a few years' time. There is just not enough original source material out there. Full stop. Wow. Um, so they're going to have to develop ways of using the source material differently. But in terms of image generation, a really interesting one recently is that search engine optimization is ruining AI. Because when people tag images, they don't tag them as what the images are. They tag them for SEO. Uh-huh. And that's more and more often happening. And so the meanings are getting distorted by the whole the SEO process. Hmm. Well, there so you go. It's going to be interesting. I think there's a... There's a job out there for people who curate. There you go, Bruce. If you don't want AI to use your images realistically, you need to just give them really messed up keywords. Well, they'll have to I'll hire just, curators. They'll yeah, have to hire I'll curators just tag all my point. images as dick pics. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But then, but then you know they'll just hire curators, or they'll develop an AI for image recognition. Right, it'll be someone's job yeah. to compare the result with what was actually in the keyword and be like, oh, yeah. that's not correct. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, guys, so um, I will definitely put links to all of your websites and things like that in the show notes. I wanted to just say thank you for this amazing panel discussion. I'm sure we could go a whole other two hours if we wanted to, but I feel like we really did a pretty good job of kind of explaining the you know, what's going on here with AI and photography. So, so thank you, Arca, Diana, Bruce, and Tim for your time. And this has been super fun. It's been so great meeting you all. Thank you. And thanks. And thanks for the opportunity, Matt. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you to Arca, Tim, Diane, and Bruce for the awesome discussion about AI and photography. I have put links to all of their websites in the show notes, so please help me support them by visiting their websites. I would also love to see you over on Nature Photographers Network, the internet's premier website for nature photographers. 
It's a fantastic resource and excellent community to improve your photography. Over on NPN, we have incredible critique forums where you can get actionable steps to improve your images from some of the best photographers on earth. There's also amazing events happening on the platform all the time, such as Ask Me Anything events, theme-based critique events, and so much more. For just $49 per year, you can gain access to all of these features and so much more. Just visit npn.link forward slash f-stop to join. You can also use the code f-stop10 for a 10% discount. You can also check out a link in the show notes. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.